I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do, who would, who, who's, who's life with me. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse do it again to come back even stronger. Ray Denning grew up a damaged little boy. He was passed around relatives and spent time in and out of juvie jail. He graduated from this criminal university to become a skilled serial armed robber, crafty prison escapologist and murderer. But in a strange turnaround, he became a prison rights activist and media darling. When he died in mysterious circumstances in 1993, Ray Denning had spent more than half his life in jail. Els Van Doren was an experienced skydiver with over 2,300 jumps behind her. In 2006, Els went skydiving with other members of the Zwartberg Parachute Club in Belgium. After leaping from a Cessna, Els was horrified to find that her parachute ropes had been cut and her parachutes wouldn't open. Els plummeted to the ground, dying on impact. But who would want the mother of two dead, and why? Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our salty and sanguine early stuff. (laughs) And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And, of course, they are automatically entered into our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. I'd like to dedicate my story today to our listener and friend, Sarah Campbell, who's fighting for her life. And you know what? You got this girl. Keep kicking. Yeah. It's Saturday, November 18th, 2006, and it's a crisp, clear autumn day in East Flanders, Belgium. Twelve members of the Zwartberg Parachute Club are in a Cessna, flying through the endless blue sky. Among them are 37-year-old mother of two, Els van Doren, 25-year-old Dutch skydiving instructor, Marcel Summers, and 26-year-old primary school teacher, Els Klodemans. The three and another member of the club intend to jump out of the plane together and hold hands to perform aerial manoeuvres. The group have built up a lot of camaraderie over the years of free-falling through the sky together. Not in a million years would I do something like that. No, me either. Uh Uh-uh. The plane would have to be on fire for me to jump out of it. Absolutely. Uh, That wouldn't make me happy. not my thing. Mm, No. But I can appreciate how you get that adrenaline rush and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's amazing if you aren't a complete... Sook like me. (laughs) (laughs) You really are, aren't you? All right, you whiny trash panda. Tell me more. Els Van Doren is excited about the jump. It's a beautiful sunny day and she's among friends. 
Weekdays, she's flat out like a lizard drinking, working hard in her husband's jewellery store and raising her two children. But weekends are her time. And she spends almost all of them with the members of the Swartberg Parachute Club, jumping out of planes and flying through the sky, free from all responsibilities and expectations. When the plane reaches 1,300 feet, the group leader gives a signal for them to jump out. Els Van Doren, Marcel Summers and another skydiver leap out of the Cessna. Els Klodemans is supposed to be part of a star formation with the others, but she lingers behind just long enough to avoid being involved in the aerial manoeuvre. Els Van Doren and Marcel Summers are wearing helmet-mounted cameras to record the dive. At first, Els floats on her back, soaking up the unobscured clear blue sky. Then she spins around and takes in the countryside below, before the three divers hold hands mid-air in a star formation. At 9,000 feet, they receive the signal to open their parachutes and the team separates. Els Van Doren struggles to open her parachute. She tries to pull her reserve cord, but something is seriously wrong. Marcel and the other jumpers can only watch in horror as Els Van Doren plummets ever closer to the ground. Also looking on from above is her close friend, Els Klodemans. Van Doren keeps pulling at the ropes, but her efforts are in vain. She tries to open the reserve parachute, but the remaining three hanging straps are intertwined. She can be seen looking up, desperately hoping to see a chute opening. When Marcel sees Van Doren is in a life-threatening situation, he swims through the air trying to reach her as fast as possible, but is unable to assist her due to the speed she's falling at. Els Van Doren soon realises she's going to die, and the camera mounted on her helmet captures her terrified screams and frantic struggle to open her chutes. The video ends on a still image of bushes in a backyard as Els Van Doren smashes to the ground, dying on impact. When Marcel lands on the grass, he lets out a heart-wrenching primal scream of horror and frustration. He then starts running through the suburb looking for Els Van Doren. A witness at the drop zone airfield named Wally Elters recalls this harrowing event. I was working on my plane when I heard someone on the ground screaming and pointing to the sky. I looked up and saw a black spot falling quickly to the ground. It was wriggling about and it was pretty obvious it was a person. Above them were three people in parachutes coming down slowly. Then this person hit the ground. It was an appalling moment. Initially, Elsa's death was considered an accident, but upon examination, it became clear that someone had sabotaged her parachutes, causing her to plummet to her death. Members of the Parachute Club were shocked and heartbroken at the sudden loss of such a wonderful woman and paid tribute to Els. The pilot of the Cessna the day of the fateful jump said, Els Van Doren was a warm woman, cheerful, full of life, always ready to help. She was very popular within the Parachute Club. His co-pilot commented, Els Van Doren was by far the sweetest and most social of the paratroopers from the club. Now, the case was initially handled by local investigators, then transferred to the federal police, who struggled to find a motive for such an unusual murder. Els Van Doren and her husband, Jan de Wilde, had been together for 19 years. They ran a successful jewellery business and had built a beautiful life together with their two children, Carol and Vincent. They'd begun skydiving together several years earlier, but in January 2006, Jan lost interest in it. Jan was happy enough for the couple to have separate hobbies, saying, I played soccer on Wednesdays and sculpted in my spare hours. Els was passionate about skydiving. We never asked questions. We gave each other that. Well, I don't, like, make my girlfriend go planking with me anymore. Well, no, she prefers owling. That's right. Mm-hmm. Only after the untimely death of his wife did Jan de Wilde learn that Els spent every weekend with her lover, Dutch skydiving instructor Marcel Summers. She stayed with him at his apartment after skydiving every Saturday night. So not only did Jan lose his wife and his kids lost their mother, but he also found out that she'd been cheating on him for years and now he was the prime suspect in her Well, murder. he would be a love triangle. Oh. Oh, it's not just a triangle, Barney. Oh, really? Oh, you better wait. Is there another point to this geometric shape? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a love hectagon. Oh. So police searched Jan and Elsa's property and took items of interest, such as his laptop. He better not have searched any murders. 
Jan hadn't questioned the fact that his wife stayed overnight every weekend at the club. He told the court, you think you know your wife, the full 100%. It seemed very normal to me. In my time, every weekend, 15 people slept at the club before the jump. Jan went on to explain how hard it had been for him and their children in the wake of Elsa's murder. 20 years INLs had a fine life without trouble. I'm sure that at no level has anything gone wrong between us, but I have a thousand questions. What was Els to Marcel's summers? We shared everything. We had no secrets from each other. I thought so anyway. That's only two questions. Well, I mean, he didn't ask all of them at the time. They didn't have all day. But, um, yeah, the police say it was very clear that he had no idea that Els was having an affair. Due to the reaction when they told him, he was just completely blindsided. So the affect was right for... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, completely. Okay, so there's a motive that's just gone. Yeah, pretty much. All right, we'll continue. Five years earlier, Els and Marcel had become lovers, although they kept their affair on the down low. When questioned by police, Marcel told them, Els Van Doren was the love of my life. With her, I was happy. But, and it's a pretty big but, (laughs) unbeknownst to Els Van Doren, Marcel was also having another secret affair with a much less popular member of the parachuting club, her friend Els Clodemans. All right, so it's a love square now. Yep. Look, I guess he really had a thing for women named Els, huh? If they travelled far to be a love rectangle. Yeah, you know what? He, he's like, I, okay, so all I need, she needs to be called Els and she needs to like parachuting and I am inside her. <laughs> hey, baby. Els <laughs> <laughs> Van Doren gave her friend Els Clodemans the nickname Babs to avoid confusion at the parachuting club. And so everyone there just called her Babs too. Now, just to keep things clear, I too shall be calling her Babs. Cool. Should I call you Babs? That'll make it simpler. Yeah, you can call call me Babs. Babs. I can call you Fuckeye. No, I could call you Babs as well. Hey, Babs. Hey, Babs. Bloody Babs. Hey, Babs. Babsy murder. (laughs) Babs had low self-esteem and suffered from some psychological problems, even attempting suicide at the age of 16. Socially, she could be a bit much for most people to deal with. Other members of the club went on record saying that Frumpy Babs was an intrusive, pushy drama queen who demanded that everyone pay attention to her all the time, with one member saying her presence would certainly not go unnoticed. She would not only be seen, but heard too. She made the most noise of all. (laughs) They're not really holding back, are they? No, no, they are not. (laughs) Now, Marcel claimed that he never meant to become sexually involved with Babs, but she threw herself at him and then he fell over and all of a sudden his penis was inside her. Oh, yeah, like women, they land on your dick sometimes. Yeah, um, you know what? It's not um, exactly what he said, but it it was the gist of it. Look, it's gravity. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, skydivers know a lot about that. Well, that's right. Magnetism. Magnets, how do they work? No one knows. With gravity, I guess. With gravity. It's called science, Tara. Yeah, look it up, Barney. Sorry, Babs. Marcel wasn't proud of banging the unpopular Babs, and they kept the secret so tightly that not even Els Van Doren knew. Marcel said, and this is very romantic, so I hope you're um you're you're ready to feel touched. Oh, hang on, I'll just strap myself in. All yeah, right, I'm ready. you need to be. Put on an adult diaper and try not to flood your basement. I told Babs repeatedly that Els was my number one, and Babs came in second place. I had never asked Babs to my home. If this situation did not please her, she could go. So yeah, Babs was basically a dick cosy for him when his penis got cold. Almost every Friday evening, Babs went to Endhoven to spend the night knocking boots with Marcel. Saturday, she wasn't allowed to visit him because Els Van Doren was always there. Though Els sometimes rocked up unexpectedly on a Friday evening, inadvertently cock-blocking Babs. Oh no, does my Friday route and my Saturday route are conflicting. Ah. I mean, that's the worst. Well, kind of. He had his priorities in check. So this is exactly what happened a week before Els' death. Babs was spending some quality time alone with Marcel, but then Els showed up unexpectedly and he was thrilled to see her. This did not please attention-seeking Babs. The three of them all stayed at Marcel's place that night, and although his Friday nights were meant to be when he played naked twister with Babs, it wasn't the younger woman who was getting all of his attention. 
Later, Marcel took Els upstairs to bed with him, telling Babs that if she wanted to stay the night, she'd be relegated to a sleeping bag in the living room. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't know if it was a good idea for anyone to sleep with Marcel. No. <laughs> personally. No. Now, through the paper-thin walls, Babs could hear the happy couple going at it hammer and tongs all night long. Oh, that's even worse. It's a really that's, not cool. That's rubbing your nose in it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, get an Uber home, Babs. Mm. Now, if we look at this from Babs's perspective, not only had the beautiful and well-liked Els taken her name and the affections of the guy she was into, but she'd also taken her Friday night fuck away from her and Babs was pissed. Yeah, yeah. Elle's parachutes were in the hall, and it's believed that in a fit of jealousy, Babs got a pair of scissors from the kitchen and cut the straps of both Elle's main and reserve chutes. Ooh. Marcel said, Saturday, Elle's and I were naked in bed. Suddenly, Babs stormed into the bedroom and she jumped on the bed. I was between Elle's and Babs. She stayed about 10 minutes. She said that she was bored and was supposedly looking for a hairdryer. I believe she sabotaged the parachute in a fit. Els remained at Marcel's until Sunday, November 12th. Babs left on Saturday but returned to Sunday and lurked outside until Els had left. There was no skydiving this Saturday. Marcel should have suggested a Marcel sandwich. I believe he probably had... They could be the bread. The Els bread. The Els bread <laughs> of the Marcel sandwich. Shortly after Els left, according to Marcel, suddenly Babs stood at my door. She was half-dressed and jumped on me. We had sex, but it was rough sex. It was different than usual. Ugh, murdery sex. Mm. Three days after Els Van Doren's death, Babs apparently accidentally found her pilot chute hanging in a tree. Now, a pilot chute is a small auxiliary parachute used to deploy the main parachute. But finding them isn't easy, as they're only the size of a paper towel, and they tend to land high up in trees. Yeah, they're the size of a hanky. They're just there to pull out the main chute. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that Babs found this pilot chute was incredibly suspicious to the authorities. Agent Eugene Crabb said, The detectives and the prosecutor found the discovery important because Els Babs Clottermans had given conflicting representations. Someone with nothing to hide does not contradict themselves. Yes, they do. No, they don't. First, she said she got lost in an area she knows well and found it by accident. Then she said she found it by looking for it. When questioned about her relationship with Marcel, Babs told authorities, I agreed to have sex with the lover of my friend because I needed it. I suffered from low self-esteem and entered the relationship knowing I was second best. I found the situation normal in the wake of the negative image I had of myself. I never thought of supplanting the victim in the heart of her lover. I did not look to destroy the relationship between Marcel Summers and Els Van Doren. But it seems that Babs was telling Porky Pies. Au contraire, Babs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop you right there, Babs. Investigators found that Babs had written an anonymous letter and made anonymous phone calls to Els Van Doren in 2005. Now, in these, she tried to put Els off seeing Marcel and demanded that she choose between him and her husband and two children. Doesn't sound very, very anonymous. No, I know. Um, Babs doesn't dispute this. Uh, she did. The letter was easy enough to make anonymous. I'm not sure if she got like a friend to do the phone call for her or if she did it herself and... <gasps> Hello, this is not Babs. Um, you need to leave my fuck piece alone. Hello, this is ba- Barry. <laughs> yeah, you know, like that. Babs had also gone to Marcel's apartment several times after Elsa's murder and pressured him to have sex with her, even trying to turn him on by putting on a show of masturbation. But Marcel was like, put that unwanted beaver away. He was not into it. Hmm. Now, you don't just start wanking to try and woo someone. Well, you learned that the hard way, didn't you? I really did. Mm. So Marcel broke off his fling with Babs for good on December 19th. And that same night, she attempted suicide by taking an overdose of medication. While being interrogated by the police, Marcel asked them, what would my motive be? Murder Els in order to be with Babs? That is ridiculous. (laughs) No, he's not like <laughs> pretending he likes uh. her. Um, so basically, he doesn't have a motive because he didn't need Bab. He didn't need Elle's dead. He was apparently in love with her. He seemed pretty into her. Um, so he got he got nothing to gain from from killing. No, her. no, killing Babs. He'd have a motive. For, I, think. <laughs> I think I think a few people might have had a motive for that. <laughs> yeah. 
Babs initially escaped suspicion from the police because of her friendship with Els. In the 10 months before the incident, they'd spoken on the phone over 200 times. But she became a suspect after she attempted suicide, which was just hours before she was due to make a second statement to the police. Mm, so they were good friends. Babs was arrested for the murder of Els Van Doren in December 2006. Now, I was lucky enough to be able to obtain court documents and police transcripts on this case translated from Flemish into English with varying degrees of success, from a website called tappertalk.com in their crime, murder and mayhem section. Oh, that's a good section. I do enjoy that section. The mayhem section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, some of the quotes seem a little strangely worded. It's because they're translated from Flemish. On a table in the courtroom lay the mud-caked parachute, bag and helmet Els Van Doren wore on her final jump. Graphic pictures of her broken, lifeless body were shown to the court And then there was the camera footage as well. I mean, it was a very compelling case. The attorney for Els Van Doren's family summed up the horrific situation they were in, stating, The first question a family normally asks is whether the victim suffered, whether she knew what happened. We don't have to ask. It was filmed. Try to deal with that as a family. Of Babs, the prosecutor Dick Renault stated, she had a very important motive. We believe she set out to do this so there would be no competition for the affections of Marcel Summers. Jealousy was the motive for a coldly calculated killing. Court psychiatrists examined Babs and found her to be psychopathic, narcissistic and manipulative. Yeah, those are good points. (laughs) Comparatively. Yeah. The defence tried to portray Babs as a delicate person with low self-esteem who was denigrated and intimidated by the police. This portrayal was grossly undermined when the court was shown the videos of her interrogations. In them, Babs is anything but a passive victim. Um, She shows no empathy for her supposed friend Els Van Doren or her family. In fact, she goes so far as to accuse Els and Jan's 15-year-old daughter, Carol, of killing her mother, telling officers, I would continue to investigate the man's daughter. As bad as that sounds, that girl was upset because her mother was gone every weekend. Maybe she knew how a parachute works. I can imagine that Els showed her children. Detective Crabb wasn't very impressed with his invitation to Babs's pity party. And he walked off sideways. He did. He likes it in the sand. He said, I told her a hundred times that we just wanted to get to the truth because the victims have rights too. But then she felt aggrieved. Babs said, Els Van Doren is dead and will remain dead. She will not return. But I, I'm still alive, however. And meanwhile, I'm alone, broken, locked in a cell. (laughs) Pity party for one, Babs. Something else that came to light was that four months before Els Van Doren's murder, um, Babs was actually suspected of trying to run over one of her ex-boyfriends, but the case was eventually dismissed, so. Attorneys for Babs highlighted that there was a lack of physical evidence against their client and suggested that Els Van Doren had committed suicide. This was contradicted not only by the footage from her helmet-mounted camera, but also a lot of eyewitness testimony, including that from Luke Newlands, who stated, I saw her pulling desperately on the ropes. It was not a suicide. She fought like someone who wanted to live. Despite the video evidence to the contrary, on the stand, Babs's mother said, She is innocent. Els Van Doren committed suicide. This claim caused Els's daughter Carol to be overcome with emotion and rush out of the courtroom. Carol later said, I had a mum that I could be proud of, and I still am. She was an incredible person. I do not see that someone still dares to say that she committed suicide. Yeah, don't shit on my mum's memory, you Yeah, fucker. stop shitting on my mum's memory. On October 20th, 2010, in a televised verdict, Els Babs Clodemans was found guilty of premeditated murder. Despite claiming earlier that Babs wasn't a psychopath, her defence attorney urged the jury to give her a last chance, saying that she was a young woman without a criminal record and she did not ask to be a psychopath. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, I can. I just have two cakes. but uh... He does. So, yeah, you know, she did not ask to be a psychopath, unlike all the other psychopaths who, like, wrote it on their Christmas list and sent it to Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. According to Time magazine, most Belgians following the trial agreed with the jury that the evidence, although circumstantial, pointed to Babs's guilt and accepted the court verdict as fair. Um, there legitimately were no other suspects. 
Well, yeah. I mean, motive means an opportunity. It's yeah. all there. And I think the fact that in 2005 she'd made those phone calls and sent letters trying to break her up, break her and Marcel up, was also pretty damning. Yeah, and finding that little um, shoot. Yeah, which would have been impossible to find and then being yeah. all weird about how she'd found it. Now, although the prosecution had asked for a life sentence, the judge sentenced Els Clodemans to 30 years. After nearly 20 years of parachute jumping, Marcel Summers does not jump anymore. He said, The joy is gone. My world collapsed after the death of Els. Jumping with Els was good. Having sex with her was great. What? I also have feelings of guilt vis-a-vis her family. I am not the author of her death, but the catalyst in this relationship of us three. Unfortunately, I can't go back to change what I did. Yeah, interesting quote, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Hanging out with her was cool. Having sex with her was awesome. Yonder Wilde, his son Vincent and daughter Carol, remained silent in the media for four years, even throughout the trial. Like, he really wanted uh, Babs to have a fair trial. Hmm. But after the sentencing, they spoke out. Jan said of Babs, she is a live virus that has invaded my family. She continues to attack my family for four years. She comes with all possible motives and she makes us hurt. She accused my daughter and myself. Babs has destroyed her life. She's taken away my wife. I am firmly convinced she has taken away the mother of my children. So yeah, he thought she was guilty. Mm. After spending eight years in prison where she's been on her very best behaviour... Els Clodemans has now received leave. Anonymous sources from within the Belgian judicial system told newspapers that she was allowed to leave the prison to seek psychiatric guidance, which is the first necessary step for reintegration into society. You'd think they could just bring the shrink to the prison. Yeah, that would make more sense. Hmm. She's never admitted guilt, and she'll be allowed to seek a conditional release from prison for good conduct after serving one-third of her sentence, or around 10 years, which is pretty much right now. Oh, so she might be out. Yep, hide your scissors and lock up your parachutes, people. I always do. Yeah, you do, actually. I've never seen your parachute. No, you haven't. Mm, must be hidden. It is. Good. Keep it away from you and your well, scissory hands. Oh, yeah, my jealous chop-chop fingers. That's right. So um, how crazy is that? That's a pretty crazy story and a horrible way to die, knowing that you're about to die oh. in a horrible way. I guess yeah. at least it'd be instant once you hit the ground. But um, knowing yeah. it's about to happen. It's... Yeah. Well, oh, God. No, that would be horrible. And the fact that her family had to sort of deal with all of this aftermath was also really heartbreaking. Mm. You know, insult to injury and all that. Yeah. So, Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, puddle, graphic novel, song. It can be a puddle. Yeah, if it's true crime related puddle. Like a puddle that looks like Jeffrey Dahmer. That's right. You can talk about it for a while. (laughs) Or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. (laughs) You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write about the puddle and we'll read it out. Just send us a picture of a puddle and um, your job's pretty much done. And we have one here from Ira. And he writes, Hi, Bloody Murder. My name is Ira Stoneham and I'm from Ottawa in Canada. And here's my true crime nerd time. It's about Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father from 2008, directed by Kurt Kuhn. I love true crime documentaries, especially movie-length ones, but I avoided Dear Zachary for years as my friends told me it was brutal and heartbreaking. You've seen it, haven't you, Tara? I I have. It's really amazing. Like, it's really worth the brutal heartbreakingness of it all. And I've never been punched in the balls, but I feel like it's like being punched in the balls atomically times a thousand. Yeah, yeah. But brilliant and worth it as well, you know? Like, you guys will get it. You're true crime, true crime fans too. Well, yeah, um, Ira's friends told him that it was brutal and heartbreaking. And he writes, they were right. 
Yeah, they, <laughs> they weren't fucking wrong. What they didn't tell me is Kurt Cohen has made a beautiful and moving dedication to his best friend, Andrew Bagby, and his family's story of injustice. Andrew Bagby was murdered for no good reason. He got shot multiple times by his crazy girlfriend, Shirley Turner, who was a man-eater and professional psycho. Oh, yeah. Like, levels you may not have seen before. She was 12 years his senior and even before the murder made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. Turner gets arrested and charged for the murder, but uh uh-oh, she's four months pregnant with Bagby's son. Being a wicked manipulator, she played that card in court and walked on bail. Andrew's parents, David and Kathleen, fought this stupid decision from the Canadian judiciary system, got her locked up again and gained the custody of Zachary when he was born. And he looked exactly like his dad. He did. But that was only the beginning of the second act of their nightmare. I don't want to spoil what happens next, but the ending will leave you breathless and in tears. I wish I hadn't waited so long to see this profound and moving insight into a judiciary system that blundered big time and the struggles of the brave Bagby family. It is a must-see for all true crime lovers. Thanks for all your hard work, Tara and Barney, and keep kicking against the pricks. Oh, thank you, Ira. Yeah, it's it's so worth watching. Yeah, and the name of that film is Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. If you want to submit a True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That. Alrighty then, Barney. I reckon it's time for you to get murdery. Ray Denning was born in Port Kimberley on the New South Wales coast in 1951. That's just near Wollongong. It is indeed. Born into poverty and criminality, his childhood was brutal and cruel. His father, Jack Denning, was a hard man who beat Ray and his sister Charmaine as well as their mother. Luckily for them, a lot of the time he was absent due to long stints in prison for violent offences. Although Ray's mother was an alcoholic, she did her best and Ray loved her. Ray's father, known around the traps as Jack the Hat, had no interest in his children and pretty much ignored them. When he wasn't beating them up. When Ray was 10, his mother killed herself by dousing herself in kerosene while in bed and setting herself on fire. Hearing her cries and seeing the smoke pouring out from under her door, little Ray had tried to put the fire out, but all he could do was watch his mother die. Ray would later say, she didn't scream and I didn't cry. Ray's father was due to be released from prison that very day. Some surmised she had taken her own life to escape the relentless abuse from Jack the Hat. Probably suffering PTSD, feelings of abandonment and separated from his sister Charmaine, Ray was passed from relative to relative, the unwanted boy sleeping on couches and sometimes floors. Feeling rejected and full of grief and anger, Ray hit out at those around him. Within weeks of his mother's suicide in 1961, Ray ran away from the home of the relatives he was staying with. He was quickly captured, but being a smart boy, he learned from his mistakes. A few months later, he ran away again, and this time they didn't catch him. Little Ray Denning lived on the street, eating out of rubbish bins and committing petty crimes to survive. For the next few years, he made multiple appearances in children's courts and spent some time in teenager jail. Ray would later describe Juvie as brutal and dehumanising and worse than adult prison. He was also in and out of foster homes and care homes but would always run away. By the time of Ray's 18th birthday, he'd appeared before judges in four states. He ran with street gangs and thumbed his nose at the law wherever he landed. With no real father figures in his life, local Svengalis used and abused poor little Ray, and his trajectory was set for a life of crime and violence. Ray did try to go straight once, but it didn't last long, working as a porter at a Sydney hotel for just nine short months. It was the only legitimate job he ever held. 
Quickly back to his life of crime, his juvenile record was becoming quite substantial. It included thieving and possessing stolen goods, dangerous driving, car theft, burglary, malicious injury, resisting arrest, vagrancy, possessing an unlicensed pistol, assaulting police, armed robbery, malicious damage, escaping from lawful custody, and using indecent language, Tara. What? Well, you do spew a few profanities. I do not spew profanities. I enunciate them clearly like a fucking lady. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But what Ray really loved was committing armed robberies. With a gun in his hand, he felt powerful and finally in control. If Ray wanted money, he would go to a bank and take it. Never from a residential house, though. To Ray, home invasions were crossing a line. It's good to have rules. Yeah, you know, you need to have your own moral compass going on there. You do. The police finally caught up with Ray in 1972. Busted and charged with armed robbery, he was sent to Parramatta Prison. The 21-year-old Ray will be spending the next 13 years behind bars. Or would he, Tara? (gasps) Ooh. Just 18 months into his sentence, Ray and three other prisoners had a trike going over the wall. Interrupted by a screw, Ray went at the prison guard with a claw hammer, beating him half to death. The guard, Willie Faber, brain damaged from the attack, would die from his injuries, but not for four years. Ray was convicted of serious assault and sentenced to life in prison. Ray was also reclassified as an intractable or highly dangerous prisoner and sent to a new maximum security jail at Katingle. Here he befriended fellow armed robber, the notorious Russell Cox. But more on Russell later. Oh yeah, there'll be more Cox than you can handle. Katingle was nicknamed the Electronic Zoo, a prison within a prison. This concrete box was designed to break the most hardened criminals. With its lack of natural light and human contact, even with prison guards, Katingle was hell. At Katingle, your meals were delivered on a mechanised plate. I don't see a problem with this. <laughs> You would like your meals delivered on a mechanised plate? Absolutely I would. You could just sit on the couch watching some true crime docos and then this little conveyor belt comes out of the wall and gives you your dinner. Yeah, that sounds delightful. Many prisoners were driven insane by its inhumane conditions. After complaints and a political shitstorm, Ray was one of the few prisoners that testified at the Nagel Royal Commission about the brutal conditions there. There weren't that many witnesses available, Tara, because so many of the prisoners that experienced Katingle were now insane and had been committed, not to mention its high suicide rate. Eventually, Katingle was closed down. And turned into a call centre. <laughs> yeah, they didn't change much, but they took out the mechanised meals. <laughs> yeah, no, no more robot dinner. No more robot dinner. Damn! In 1977, Ray Denning was sent to Maitland Jail, another Supermax prison. Conditions there were not that much better. But but was there robot dinner? There was no robot dinner. Oh, God, that sounds dark. After a few weeks, Ray and six other prisoners, all armed robbers, decided it was in their best interest to relocate. Jailbreaker! Hey, (laughs) getting out the akadaka. Ray and his mates cut a hole through the roof of the new shower block and went over the wall to freedom. It was a cunning plan and brilliant escape. And like flies on a woolly bum, they were on the lamb. Oh, dear. Problem was, no one really knew what to do once they were on the outside. Within four hours, Ray and his jailbreak buddies had been <laughs> recaptured. Prison authorities scratched their heads and their asses and wondered what to do with the rubble rouser Ray and his rambunctious escape attempts. There was only one prison left which could contain him, a place so nasty it has been referred to as the Australian Alcatraz. Ray Denning was off to picturesque Grafton Jail. It's very, it looks lovely. Well, yeah, I've heard that it isn't. No, it's not a jail anyway. It's a bit shit. Yeah, it's just a little bit shit. It was August 1978 and Ray was getting the shit punched out of him every other day by prison guards payback for his hammer attack on the prison officer, Willie Faber. Grafton was infamous for its sadistic and vicious guards, who always welcomed new prisoners by giving them a blanket party. Ah, a bit of a ski mask celebration, huh? Ah, that's it. The beating was nicknamed the Jacaranda Festival. 
Oh, okay. Jacaranda trees are big and they have beautiful purple flowers and there's actually a jacaranda festival in Grafton. So what do you reckon, like purple bruising, that sort of thing? That's pretty clever. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Grafton Jar was the worst of the worst where the worst of the worst prisoners were fed bratwurst. (laughs) (laughs) It made hell feel like winning the lotto and buying your own tropical island. Grab a beer and pull up a dick chair. That's right. Grafton prison officers took pride in their work, Tara, and were highly skilled at beating down prisoners until there was nothing left. Hmm. They enjoyed it. They loved they loved their job. So it's like really a place for sadists to get a job. Yeah. Also like a call centre. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Ray Denning was already close to breaking when news got out that Willie Faber had died from his injuries. Now the awful and brutal beatings from the guards doubled. To keep his sanity, Ray began documenting his grim existence. Dear Diary, today was really shit. Got bashed up, then got bashed up again. Dinner did not come on a robot tray. I hate it here. Actually, Tara, he wrote, The longer I'm kept in jail, the more antisocial I'm becoming. I came into jail with feelings of love, kindness, sympathy, emotion and understanding. But now I know the only way I can survive is to live on revenge, hate and violence. This is the only avenue left for prisoners to take. Oh, well, that's far more poetic than my version. Yeah. That's what you wrote in your call centre diary, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) That was my resignation letter from my last job. Ray started smuggling pages out of Grafton to prison reform activists. Eventually, his entire diary detailing his daily beatings was published to critical acclaim. A political crap storm ensued. It was the late 70s and the prison reform movement was campaigning against police verbals, as in coerced confessions. Oh, not as in them just saying mean things like, you're ugly and fat. They also used to like uh, write out confessions and then force suspects to sign them. Yeah, there was some dirty work going on. They're also campaigning for better conditions for prisoners. Mm. You know, more robot meals, that kind of thing. Yeah, less beatings perhaps. Less beatings. In his diary, Ray claimed to have been set up with a fabricated confession and that he had nothing to do with the hammer attack on Willie Faber. Mm. But this did nothing to stop the daily bashings from the guards. One day, Ray, with the help of other inmates, hid in a cardboard box. (laughs) Well, you can't do it alone. Which was then placed in a skip. After it was rolled outside the prison walls, ready for collection, Ray carefully got out and ran off into the night. I told you he was a crafty escapologist. Did he do it like a crab? He, well, yeah. <laughs> like Zoyberg. That's what I was thinking. He would become the only man to escape from Grafton Jail in its 100-year history. Yeah, but women did it all the time. Yeah. No, they didn't. He was the only bloke, though. <laughs> it was a man prison. No. Whilst on the lamb, like roasted baby leeks with oak-smoked bacon croutons, Ray continued to campaign for prison reform. Sydney radio station 2JJ was sent an audio tape by Ray detailing his experiences in Grafton. Ray also sent a videotape to a TV station and current affairs TV show 60 Minutes did a segment on him. He also taped a letter to the front glass doors of police headquarters and then left his palm print there just so they really knew it was Ray. The public loved it, and Ray became something of a hero to the downtrodden. Smart and media-savvy Ray had boyish good looks and a tragic life story, and his campaign for prison reform started getting traction. It didn't even matter that while Ray was on the lamb, like butternut squash with garlic and parsley, he committed more than a few armed robberies and various other crimes while amassing a massive pile of guns, which he sat on laughing. Oh, did he dive into it like Scrooge McDuck? I think he did. Mm-hmm. Police were pissed. Due to public support for Ray, they weren't going to get any help there in capturing him. Mark Brandon Chopper Reed, notorious hard man and criminal, has good things to say about Ray Denning. What does Uncle Chop Chop have to say about him? Well, he disagreed with his prison reform ideas. <laughs> All right, I got to hear this. I couldn't give a rat's ass about prison reform and I've got no time for people that want to go on about prison reform. Better food or better conditions or stop bashing us and all this stuff. If you want the screws to stop bashing you, you go and speak to them yourself. If you want better food, you go up to them and say, Listen, you said me better food, I'll fucking cut your throat. 
You know, I had good food. I don't doubt it. Thanks, Chopper. Mm. It was 1981, and after a year and a half on the run, Ray was turned in by a so-called mate and fellow criminal. The police kicked in his door in Manly, where he was in bed with his lady friend, Linda Jobson, who was with child. So, yeah, she was preggers with Ray's right. baby. Right. Breaks out of jail, breeds a little bit. Yep. The cops tossed his flat and found some incriminating swag. A complete armed robbery kit, including guns, wigs, masks, inflatable unicorns. Oh, probably at least three skateboards, a jet ski, yeah. a tattoo machine. At his trial in 1983, Ray received a 10-year sentence for absconding from Grafton. But, and it's a big but, a month later, his sentence was reduced to five years. Ah, cut in half. Mm. Sweet. Maybe it was his years of campaigning for prison reform, but whilst inside, he was now being treated fairly. The beatings stopped and nobody spat in his food. Bonus. That's what they'd do. They'd spit in your food every day. Mmm, yum. By 1988, Ray was in a low-security wing at Goulburn Prison, and it's all good, Tara. Yeah? Or is it? Sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. No. No? Oh, God, now what happens? Ray being Ray, he was compelled to do more Ray stuff. Uh, Makes sense. That same year, Ray climbed the fence and ran off into the night. (laughs) He was joined by a new girlfriend, mother of three, Anne Detton who, after writing to him in prison, had fallen hard for Dreamboat Ray. Oh, ladies love Cool Ray. They do. LL Cool Ray. Anne left her kids in the wind and went on the run with Ray. Check your priorities, Anne. What Ray did next was the impossible. He looked up his old mate and mentor, fellow armed robber, Russell Cox. I said there was going to be more Cox than you can handle. Why was this impossible, Tara? You were going to ask me? But I didn't. Russell was also on the run and had been for 11 years after escaping from Katingle. A master of disguise, Russell had left the police with their dicks in their hands and totally baffled as to his whereabouts. That's because he disguised himself as a sausage. Where did he go? Into a sausage roll. For more than a decade, the cops had been desperately seeking Russell. (laughs) You've seen that movie, haven't you? Oh, are you fucking kidding me? I was obsessed with it. Well, Ray found him in a few days. Wow. Maybe he put an ad in the paper like Madonna did. Oh, yeah. Now, I think he had some contacts. And then he circled it in eyeliner in a love heart shape. Oh. But the cheery reunion wasn't going to last long. Twasn't? No, it wasn't. Oh. (laughs) The pair went south and ended up in sunny Melbourne. Short on cash, they decided it was time for a robbery. But guards had spotted them following their armoured van through the city and they rang the cops. Ray Denning was identified and the police came in hard, ramming the car in a suburban shopping centre car park. Ray, who was driving, was thrown from the car and went headfirst onto the road. Seatbelts. Wear them. Yeah. Russell Cox was hauled out of the car and after a few fisticuffs was arrested. Inside the now mangled Ford, the cops found their robbery kit. Guns and masks. The police were thrilled. They had not only captured Ray, but as a bonus, they accidentally got Russell Cox in an awesome two-for-one deal. Ah, they would have been celebrating. Oh, yeah. Australia's two most wanted men were now back in custody. Ray's old lady, Anne Denton, got arrested and got a three-year suspended sentence. Anne told media, Oh, I'll wait for him. Why? Because I love him. And I know he's not what everyone thinks he is. Yeah, she's got it bad. Yeah, has he got it bad for her too? Or is uh, he going to somehow hook up with someone else? Ah, uh, you know. And no, I don't, but I'll Well, up. I'll tell you, Tara. <laughs> if I ever raise shut a, up. Raise a bit of a pants, man. How does he get to have more poontang in prison than most people get on the outside? Well, you know. Charm. LL Cool Ray. That's right. Facing some serious time in jail in Melbourne... Ray did the unthinkable and turned dog to reduce his sentence. Woof. At his request, Ray the Supergrass was transferred to New South Wales and put in isolation. The first fellow armed robber he turned in was Santo Mercuri, a sausage maker turned gunman. And the word of the episode is sausage. Mm, Well, you know, uh, sausage is a gateway uh, drug to robbery. Yeah, Yeah, it's a gateway food. Santo had botched a robbery at the Barclay Square Shopping Centre in Brunswick, Victoria, which... 
is just around the corner from where we are right now. It certainly is. Whilst pinching the payroll from Coles, a security dude, Dominic Hefty, was shot and later died. Ray also pointed the finger at his mate, Russell Cox, and a little-known gangster, soon to be a well-known gangster, Mark Moran. Ah. The last episode I did on his dad. That's true. Fun fact, the cops were convinced other criminals were responsible for the Barclay Square robbery and shooting. Victor Pierce and Graham Jensen. Detectives shot and killed Jensen in a shopping strip in Narry Warren on October 11th, 1988, whilst trying to arrest him over the hefty murder. The following day, two uniformed police, Constables Steve Tynan and Damien Eyre, were ambushed and killed in Wall Street, South Yarra, as a payback for the Jensen killing. Later evidence would exonerate Jensen of the Barclay Square robbery, and police essentially killed an innocent man. If you want more, if you want to know more about that shooting of those cops, check out our Pettingill uh, episode. Yeah, it's a real animal kingdom. Yeah. Many more fellow crims would go down on Ray's word. Ray Denning's decision to go dog was not a popular one, Tara. No, it normally isn't, Barney. Why don't we hear about? Uh, why don't we hear what Chopper had to say about it? <laughs> I would like to. Thank you. No, I didn't expect Denning to turn dog. Denning, why? Denning turned dog? Unbelievable. There were some maggots and turds, you know, like prison yard snitches. I don't like them at all. Just lots of maggots and turds. <laughs> Thanks for that, Chopper. Ray had gone from media darling to a man who was hated by police and criminals alike. On one occasion, while giving evidence, a former prison inmate hurled a bone to the courtroom floor. There's your lunch, you fucking dog, the man yelled at Ray. Yum, said Ray. <laughs> <laughs> After five years in protective custody, Ray was released to much fanfare. Promised admission into the Witness Protection Program, Fizz Gig Ray was ready to make a new start. But due to public and political pressure, surprise, surprise, the government had one more fuck you to give to Ray. They dropped him from the program just about as he was being released. As soon as the big doors swung open and he walked out to freedom, Ray was a marked man. Ladies' man Ray moved in with his new squeeze, Robin Larson. My God, he's really got it going on, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He would only enjoy six short weeks of freedom. On June 11th, 1993, at 2.30 in the morning, ambulance officers were called to his Sydney Terrace house. Ray Denning was dead. Details were scant, with police telling media there are no suspicious circumstances. But contraire, Tara, contraire. Everyone was suspicious about the circumstances. Oh, contraire. A rumour started that Ray had been poisoned. A later coronial inquest revealed the cause of death as a heroin overdose. It was also reported that there were needle marks found on Ray, but in his back, not to place where you'd normally inject drugs. Oh, I beg to differ. I mean, most of the uh, intravenous drug users I've ever known are just trying to tap a vein in their back so I they just, can just inject themselves. You've got to find a back vein. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, it's the biggest vein you've got. It's the best one for it. Also, a so-called Mr. Smith testified in secret and was granted immunity from prosecution. He told the inquest he sold Ray the wackety smackety because people call it that. No, they don't. On the night he died, but police refused to allow him to be cross-examined. Fishy. Conspiracy. Some say Ray Denning was verbaled in death just as he'd been verbaled in life. Ray was not known as a drug user, but he did write about indulging in drugs on occasion in his diary. The inquest concluded that Ray had died of a heroin overdose, but ruled out suicide. Ray made it to 42. So he didn't put the wackety-smackety in his backety on purpose to no. kill himself? Okay. So what a story, hey, Ray, he had a bit of a cursed life. Oh, God, he had a terrible start. Yeah. And then, like, the middle wasn't much better. I mean, at least the ladies liked him, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it tailed off towards the end, though, too. Oh, it really did. He mm. saw a lot of prison. But he was responsible for a lot of prison reform in the 70s there. A lot yeah, well, of those... I mean, if he didn't like it, he just left. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, look. It's not really working out for me. I'm um, going to leave. Yeah, you know, she knows where the door is, as does he. If she did not like it, she could leave. <laughs> you know, it's like prison was... A revolving door? No, <laughs> oh, was a self-cleaning gloving. Self-cleaning Danny Glover. Where's my robot meal? I would like a robot snack, please. A robot snack. 
I have a question for you, Tara. Yes, Barney. What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I'd love to hear one. A South Australian tradie recently went on a drunken rampage from hell in Bali, making some of the Balinese population think Aussie tourists are even more drunken, violent and shit than they used to. Who would do such a thing? You'll find out. After drinking buckets of cocktails and his weight in vodka, 26-year-old apprentice builder from Adelaide, Nicholas Carr, went running around the streets of Bali acting like he'd been transported into the game Grand Theft Auto. GTR. That's it. He launched a flying kick at a motorcyclist who was on his way to work, brutally knocking him off his bike. Caro then upped the ante on his fuckery by charging at a car driving down the road while shouting, Fuck this! Fuck you! You fucking cunt! He attempted to leap over the car, but instead, like, rolled off the bonnet and faceplanted on the road. He then got up, scampered off, and was chased by several men. Footage obtained by Channel 9 allegedly shows Caro attacking grandfather Naomi Perda and throwing him off his porch while claiming someone was trying to kill him. Further CCTV footage shows Caro allegedly smashing windows at a mini-mart and a restaurant before being tackled to the ground and tied up by concerned locals who put him under citizens' arrest. You know when you get tied up on the ground by citizens who then arrest you that you've really fucked up big time? Yeah. According to news.com.au, Caro is now facing serious charges of assault, which carry a maximum penalty of two years and eight months behind bars. He has apologised and offered to compensate victims of the spree, saying, Oh, I have drunk until I've blacked out, but I've never done this before, ever. And I highly recommend that you don't do it again, Caro. Random acts of violence are never cool. Save it for your avatar, you mad cunt. Caro sounds like a bit of a knob. Yeah, look, he... He was certainly behaved like a knob that night. Uh, I don't know anything else about him, really, but uh, he was being like more than a knob. I'm surprised someone didn't die. He seriously hurt some people. Yeah, he's a bit of a dickhole. Yeah, yeah, total dickhole. But a lot of the time, Australians go to Bali and make complete dickholes of themselves. They do. Yeah, like seriously. Sometimes they're just so lovely they get asked to leave. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that would happen to you. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, Mm -hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us on our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. When Marcel sees Van Doren is in a life-threatening situation, he swims through the air trying to reach her as fast as possible, but is unable to assist her due to the speed she's falling at. What kind of stroke would you use to swim through the air? Backstroke? Uh, Breaststroke? Breaststroke. No, it's froggy stroke, isn't it? Mm. Is that a doggy paddle? Doggy paddle. No, that's a... That's a frog, frog stroke. Backstroke. Not backstroke. That looks silly. They'd begun skydiving together several years earlier, but in January 2006, Jan lost interest in it. I just get bored, you know? You jump from plane ground. Oh, it's just the same. Sky, 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 sky. You see one sky, you see all the sky. Well, this is the thing. I'd like to parachute first, but then I look at the sky. It's just blue. It's nothing there. Sometimes there's clouds, but you know, it's, it's, it's you the get, same. You, it's just all the same. It's just the sky. Yawn. And now, 15 people sleep with Marcel before the jump is pretty much how this turns out. Oh, yeah, when I use the door, they suck to have 20 people in a bed at the same time. <laughs>
we'd all just lie on each other in a pile naked. It was perfectly normal. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, sometimes your penis would go on someone's ear, but you know, it's not a big deal. Of course, I've had it in the year before. Marcel said, Saturday, Els and I were naked in bed. Suddenly, God, I hate him. <clears throat> well, suddenly I was just naked in bed. Oh, pretty much. Mar- and then she came in and she got in the middle of us and, and grabbed me on the dick. And I said, no, I can't. I'm here with Alice. Come on, you got a Friday. But it's my Friday, <laughs> she says. And then, no, she went, no. It's Saturday now, bitch. It's Saturday now. She was 12 years his senior and even before the murder made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. Like you at that bar last week. Oh, oh, it was me that was making them uncomfortable? I was asked to leave because I was too lovely. <laughs> I don't think that's why you were asked to leave. <laughs> Come on, fuck eyes, you got it. You got this, champ. Destroy it like you do all of your friendships. <laughs> oh. Oh. You know, I'm just being in a cunt bucket mood, right? Yeah. Fucking crabby today, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. crabby as God, fuck. Scuttle. Yeah, crab. Yep. Crabby as hell today. Are you Annabelle Crab? I am, yes. And so I'm like that haunted doll, but I have crab legs and I'm going to fuck your shit up. Well, scuttle off, Tara. Mm-mm. Fuck eyes. I'll scuttle all right, but it won't be off. It'll be on. There was only one prison left which could contain him, a place so nasty it has been referred to as the Australian Alcatraz. Oh, dear, you're talking about my underpants again, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, they, the only thing that could contain him was Tara's panties. <laughs> oh, yeah, he'd never get out of there alive. Ray Denning was off to picturesque Grafton Jail. Whilst on the lamb, like roasted baby leeks with oak-smoked bacon croutons, Ray continued to campaign for prison reform. Who has croutons on lamb? People do. Who? Name one. Name someone. We know a lot of the same people. Name me one of them that has croutons on lamb. Toby Smithton. That's not a real person. It is a real person. No, that person does not go to our school. <laughs> he's, he's, he's from, from Can- Canada. He's from Canada. <laughs> right. It's actually a Canadian delicacy, isn't it? It really is. And then left his palm print there just so they really knew it was Ray. Look, that's very cheeky, isn't it? Do you think he considered leaving a ball print instead? Bum print. Bum print. Yeah. Oh, yeah I'd know that crack anywhere. That's Ray Denning. Oh, my God. He's been here. <laughs> You know, all bum prints are unique. Oh, absolutely. They're the oh. fingerprints of Uranus. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> this better be in the outtakes, not the real episode. I swear to God, Barney. I swear to God. I'm putting it at the beginning. <laughs> the following program is brought to you by Tara saying bum print. And it contains bum prints, cunts and bum prints. Uh. Lots and lots of bum prints. Uh. Drink it up, fuck eyes. There's lots of bum prints coming your way. <laughs> oh, there's more than enough bum prints for all of us. So dig in. The public loved it. Yeah, they were like, sweet. We do love an anti-hero in this country. The public loved Ray's bum prints. <laughs> well, I believe they sold for quite a, a large amount of money. The cops tossed his flat and found some incriminating swag. A complete armed robbery kit, including guns, wigs, masks... Inflatable unicorns. Oh, probably at least three skateboards, a jet ski, a yeah. tattoo machine. Uh, well, some gigantic sunglasses like Elton John used to wear. Oh, yeah. Some chandeliers, a uh, piano. <laughs> <laughs> and a keytar. Uh-huh, five elephant feet. Oh, for the pigeon umbrellas in. Yeah, he, well, and oh, let's not forget about all the umbrellas. Well, you Hundreds need, of umbrellas. That's why he had so many elephant feet. Absolutely. There are a couple of bunny skulls, uh, ventriloquist dummy, um, 17 scotch eggs and a jar of pickles. I've never had a scotch egg. They look yummy. It's an egg in the covered jar? in sausage. Oh, I have no idea. I thought they might be those ones in the jar and I'm not interested. No, that's a pickled egg. Oh, okay. No, it's a boiled egg and it's covered in sausage. How? I don't know. It's a miracle. (laughs) An egg covered in sausage? What will they think of next? I know. I want a scotch egg. Can you make me one for my birthday or something? For your birthday, sure. It's not for a while. (laughs) Certainly not doing it now. 
I know a lot of my my stories that I tell you is about my kids in my car because mm-hmm. they like to annoy me. Well, uh, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does well, it? Well, we were sitting in silence for 10 minutes and then Mo says to me, he says, at your funeral, I'm going to insist that everyone wears yellow. Oh, burn. And I'm going to say you love that colour uh-huh. and I'm going to dress you in yellow. <laughs> And we're going to play that Coldplay song <laughs> about oh, yellow. This kid is a genius. I hate yellow. I oh, hate I Coldplay. Know. Yep. What? Come on. Well, you're just going to have to live. You're just going to have to outlive Mo. It's the yeah. only way. Yeah, you're right. I can help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like a centipede with many pairs of shoes on, Russell was on the run. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) And there were croutons. Oh, there were croutons. Deviled croutons. Oh, deviled croutons. They're wrapped in sausages. (laughs) They are. That's what deviled everything is. I'm going to devil you one day and you'll be glad about it. Yeah, I do like a sausage. Mm They had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.